welcome to another episode of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm your host, Dr. Richard McKinnon. I'm a chartered psychologist and a coach, and I am joined this week by a fellow chartered psychologist and coach, uh, Dr. Rachel Skews. And Rachel and I go go way back, and if you listen to the podcast, you'll have heard her on previous episodes. This time we're talking about coaching, and we're talking about the kind of coaching that we do where we bring uh, a combination of coaching skills, but also our insight into the science of psychology. And we bring that to life in coaching and it can make for a very impactful and successful coaching experience. And Rachel and I just had a long chat. Um, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. We, we covered so many different things. We, we looked at the role of goals and goal setting and coaching. We explored some of the uh, important processes within ACT or acceptance and commitment theory and the difference that that makes to the coaching experience. Um, we looked at what coaching psychology is and even how we can use some of these things within health coaching contexts, not just the workplace. And of course, the relationship that we have with our thoughts, our thoughts and feelings, which is really core to ACT cultivating um, a more helpful and positive relationship with this stuff that's inside of us. I really hope you enjoy um, the conversation we had. Um, please do get in touch with your feedback and your questions. Uh, but for now, over to Rachel. Rachel, I am delighted you were able to join me today. It's great to have you back on my pocket psych. How are you doing? I am very good, thank you. And it feels like it's been a while. It's a real pleasure to come back on and chat with you. So thanks for the invite. Well, I thought the timing was uh, appropriate um, now that we uh, are working together um, and more about that anon. But the real reason um, I wanted to have a chat with you is to unpack some of um, some of the work you do in a coaching context and in particular, look at the work you do um, that brings acceptance and commitment theory to life in the everyday uh, for your coachees. Before we did dive into that detail, though, maybe you could give our listeners who didn't hear that previous episode um, a little bit of an insight into who you are and what you do. All right. I'll try and do that in a nutshell version. So, yeah, I'm Dr. Rachel Skews. Uh, I like to get the doctor in there. Lots of women who oh, have yes. PhDs don't, don't get acknowledged for it. So I read in some research. So I try to be forward that I I have a kind of a slightly convoluted background to um, compared to some people, I suppose. I always think that's quite nice. I've I've played in a lot of spaces. I've been in a lot of different contexts, and I think I have a lot that I draw on in my work, in my practice, and uh, just generally as a human being as well. So I started off. Oh, where do I start? My first degree was in philosophy, so I was trained for nothing when I left university. <laughs> And uh, so I fell into business consulting and it was uh, quite a joy, really. Um, I started work in employee assistance programs, so uh, counselling, coaching, support for individuals in the workplace, dealing with a whole range of different issues. So this could be uh, where I started my career. It was, you know, dealing with post-traumatic incidents uh, right through to dealing with bullying and harassment and burnout and stress 
and all of those different challenges that we have in the workplace. Um, and I did that for a few years and then I moved into career coaching. So outplacement support, um, helping individuals to uh, get new job opportunities after they've been made redundant from an organization. And all that time I was kind of working on the business side and watching practitioners, you know, who were coaches or clinicians working with clients, not literally watching them, obviously, but, you know, seeing seeing the work, being involved in the work uh, from a business perspective. And I thought, oh, I think I want to do that. And so I retrained as a psychologist. I did a degree in psychology and then a master's in occupational psychology. And um, that was at Goldsmiths and absolutely loved it. Just felt like this is my spiritual home in terms of the content, but also, you know, the team that were teaching. And uh, I try not to be too effusive about how wonderful they all are. But in my opinion, they are pretty (laughs) wonderful. So, and actually I joined the staff. Uh, So I finished my master's, uh, really enjoyed it, got a lot out of it and was encouraged to apply for PhD funding, which I was successful in in getting. And so then I thought, oh, I actually have to do this PhD now, which I did. Um, Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Absolutely loved it. Highly recommend it to anyone who's thinking about doing one, but oh, took over my life for about four years. And um, that was using ACT, adapting ACT for coaching and uh, ran a randomized controlled trial. That was the sort of the, the big study that I did as part of my research, looking at a number of different outcomes. So performance and well-being, sort of like mental health, and also looking at things like self-efficacy and attitudinal outcomes and you know, a whole range of different things that we measured. And over a period of about three months, we looked at the changes that were occurring in all of these different outcomes. And we had an intervention group and a weightless control group. So we were able to see what was changing in the intervention group, what was staying the same in the control group. You got a much better, stronger picture uh, and a lot stronger story that you can tell in terms of causality from the intervention so really big piece of work, like I said, sort of took over my life for about four years, um, but like in a really happy way, like I, I really enjoyed it. And then I taught for a few years and then I had the luck to be invited to start to work uh, as a consultant with Headspace who were building a health coaching intervention. So I went over to Headspace and I've been there for about three years and have now just started doing my own consultancy practice, focusing on coaching, using acceptance and commitment theory, and hopefully offering training to coaches as well as, you know, uh, offering coaching itself. So that is why, in a nutshell, uh, we're talking <laughs> today. Thank you for that for that summary. What, what, you know, always jumps out at me when you talk about that research you did was not just the what works, uh, but how much, but also how does this work, this thing that we're talking about? You know, what what do we see? And we're comparing it to other things. And that that randomized control trial methodology really gives you that that powerful insight. But I don't envy you. It's tough to do, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it's a lot of work. And I think it's difficult to do quantitative studies. They take a lot of resources 
And that's the challenge. And so I felt it was really important for me to do that work because it's so thin on the ground in terms of coaching and coaching psychology. So hopefully it's a useful study. It was, I would say, deeply insightful in a couple of different ways. One of which is, like you said, we were able to really explore in a bit more detail how the coaching was working. And we may, we might talk a little bit more about psychological flexibility further into this conversation, but uh, essentially that's what you're targeting when you're using acceptance and commitment-based approaches. You're looking at increasing somebody's ability to work towards the things that are important and meaningful to them when that feels difficult for whatever reason. There can be a whole range of different reasons that that feels difficult to them. It could be that they don't they're not really focused on what's important to them, or then maybe they, they've not even had a chance to think about what's important to them. And I know that sort of often sounds a bit odd to people. And once you get people thinking about it, it comes quite quickly, but they may not be connecting we call values to the things that purpose to you. They're not necessarily connecting to those things very strongly. And I see that play out an awful lot in the workplace. And yet, if you can connect with those things, it has a really powerful impact on people in my experience. So worth doing. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you know me and listeners know me when it comes to this, I'm really passionate about it. Um, equipping people with these skills to boost psychological flexibility gets us so many benefits in so many different areas. It's both an exciting thing, but also a very valuable thing. I think, to bring into the world. I really liked your summary of what ACT is and what it means to um, increase our psychological flexibility. And there are so many different ways it can be used. Some listeners may be most familiar with ACT standing for acceptance and commitment therapy, where, of course, this had its roots. But we can bring these principles, these processes to life in lots of different contexts. And the coaching that you and I do is one of those contexts. And I know that something that we share is a real passion for doing things properly. <laughs> that's, that's a nice way I can think of, you know, if we're going to do something as important as coaching with other humans, can we not do it well using methods that we know work and bring some professionalism to this whole enterprise. And that's something that you and I are focusing on at the moment in trying to help organizations understand the best way that they can introduce coaching and do that properly in a joined up way to get maximum impact from it. Difficult question, maybe. Um, what do you think enables a coaching psychologist, a psychologist who brings coaching to life for people, uh, what makes them different from a typical business coach that people might be familiar with out in the world? Mm, I think, oh, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to respond to that in a slightly different way, which is to say, I cannot imagine coaching without using psychology. It just, I don't know what I would be doing. And I'm not saying that, you know, people who don't have the psychological background don't know what they're doing. But all I'm saying is that it's so deeply ingrained in my practice as a coach that without that framework and uh, precision in terms of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and for me as well, it's about an ethical question. So if I'm intervening somebody in some way, I want to know what I'm doing is safe 
as well that um, that has been tested in some way, shape, or form. That, that's a really good way of looking at that. Yeah, it's come up to me so much, especially because uh, the work that I was doing for Headspace, you know, that was part of a, a group and it was very much um, embedded in technology and that brought up a lot of questions around ethics for me, which I had the, the, the pleasure of grappling with some of those ethical dilemmas around using technology and data, all of that sort of stuff. And then now that I'm focusing very much on my own practice, um, trying to think about how do you do you work with people in that ethical way and as a supervisor how do you support people to have ethical practice as well so it's been something that sitted it's sat with me a lot over the last few years in terms of I think if you are in practice in some way shape or form then being able to work in a very ethical way you know it's very important to me I think it's important to a lot of people and an easy way of doing that is to use uh, psychologically grounded theories and techniques and models that give you almost like a map. You know, it's what it shows the pathways that you can follow to help journey with your clients. You know, navigate things safely and effectively. What I mean, it's just a beautiful uh, combination, really, for me. I want to know that what I'm doing is safe, and I also want to know that it's going to be effective. And the psychological theories are a really good way of ensuring that what we do is safe and effective and a lot of them have been tested Uh, so there's a lot of coaching research that's looking at cognitive behavioral approaches it's looking at solution focused approaches lots and lots of different approaches that have come out of the therapeutic tradition the, the same way that ACT has and so um is it sneaky to say it's a bit of a shortcut? <laughs> oh, tell me more. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, science is very much, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. You don't do it all yourself. You can look at what's out there. You can look at what's been tested. And then you can, as a scientist, you know, take that and adapt it the way that I did with uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, adapting it over into a coaching context and testing that. But I think that as a practitioner, you can look at what's happening in other areas of psychology and you can draw from that. You can, you know, uh, if you want to do training, there's training available. And if you want to read research, there's also research available. So I think as a community of practitioners and scientists, psychologists have so much to offer, whether you are a psychologist yourself or not, because I think the question, that sort of elephant in the room is, you know, becoming a psychologist is to some extent an elitist profession. You have to have, to be a chartered psychologist, a minimum of six years training. So it's nice for me to be able to sit there and say, yes, you know, that's the way forward. But the reality is not everybody's gone down that route. Everybody feels that route is open to them. And so I think I do want to acknowledge the privilege of being a chartered psychologist and, um, you know, it doesn't make you necessarily a better practitioner uh, just because you're chartered. But I think what it does is being scientifically informed, you lean into all of that work that's been done. You're standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. And I think that's valuable. I think that's useful. I, yes, absolutely. And to be able to reach into that toolkit of either concepts that can bring things to life for people for clients or evidence if they prompt 
you to to get that if they want some more information as to how something works and and people do they're they're an informed purchaser of the services but um what it's a conversation i've had a few times in the last few months in chemistry sessions i've had with prospective clients where they have asked this very question what makes you different to everyone else who calls themselves a coach and i think it's important to be able to answer that question in positive terms, as opposed to just, well, they're all rubbish, <laughs> which you cannot <laughs> say, but to say, actually, well, look, here is the value that psychology brings to coaching. And it's very difficult to disentangle them. You're, you're absolutely right. What would you be doing if you weren't considering psychology? But I think the weakness in a lot of these other approaches is that they focus on behavior from today. Let's do it. And the way I've answered this question is to say, well, what psychology helps us look at and reminds us of the importance of this perspective is the thoughts, the feelings, the psychological experiences that led you to today and can help you understand um, how they have played a role in your decision-making and your behavior that leads you to this conversation we're having now. Um, and reminding us both that you're a complex and interesting individual rather than here's the process you will fit in the process and it starts now and there's your goal over there yeah not everyone agrees with that but that's that, that's about the the best way i've come up with with explaining the difference between pure coaching capital c coaching and coaching psychology I also, I think there's something lovely about that precision. You know what you're doing and why you are doing it. So I've said to people before, you, you brought up, you know, hey, that's your goal over there. Let's get you over there. And I, I challenge that a lot, actually. Oh, I could talk about goals for quite a long time. I've been really <laughs> uh, enjoying grappling with some of the ideas behind goals and why is it that people hate smart goals? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> There's so many clients I've worked with where I'm like, right, sit down, we're going to do smart goals. And they're just like, oh, the horror. Um, and I think I've, I've, again, as an ACT practitioner, there's a lot about flexibility and I've become a lot more flexible around goal setting and the purpose and the function of goals. And I think really for me, uh, the success is not achieving the goal success is the action and the learning and if you never reach the goal that can still be success do you know what i mean does that make sense it totally does because we we, we keep talking about it as a goal being a destination but what's much more important is the journey and yeah. if you don't reach that destination but you've had a values aligned journey on the way and you've been living in a way that's true to yourself and doing important stuff then that's far more important than this one destination because i think the overarching focus on goals places success in our minds is a very binary thing you are successful or you are not when in fact that that labeling can be very destructive what I try and encourage my clients to do is to identify the direction of travel, which is most important. And then, well, what would be a valued destination to reach? And that is so individual. You know, it, it could be dealing with my email by the end of the week. It could be getting a new professional accreditation. It could be moving country. 
um, you know, it's the fact that you there's somewhere you want to reach and you really can see the value of getting there. And to come back to your earlier point, I think that the groans you hear from people when you bring up goals in the workplace often because goal setting is done so badly in many organizations, it's almost like a punishment um, rather than something that could aid people to get clarity on where they want to get to. I, I think that description of it is a punishment is sadly more true often than not. And I've had that experience myself, you know, I'm a big into goals. I know they can be very um, useful, very directive, you know, they really focus you around the kinds of resources that might be available to you that if you didn't have that focus, you know, you, you might not be, um, it might not be so easy to see. So, hey, I'm definitely not you know, negative about goals, but I agree with you. It sometimes feels like it's like, what have I done to deserve this? <laughs> this terrible <laughs> <Yeah>. task. <laughs> I'm I, trying I to work out. <laughs> it's goals equals work rather than goals equals clarity, you know, um, or goal means we're all pulling in the same direction and this is what we're here to do. It's, oh, I've got another set of goals for you in my managerial bag here. <laughs> Brace yourself, here they come. And and of course, when we think about the, the work that we do from an ACT perspective, the goal, where does it fit in there? Uh, as much as it is doing what matters, doing what's valued, moving in that valued direction, the next step, that's what's really important. The next thing you can do to move you towards that, because again, a failing with a lot of goal setting is, well, the goal's over there, off you trot, rather than, uh, now let's talk about how you're going to get there. Because goal setting yeah. and goal attainment are two very different things. The other thing I would love to bring into this conversation now, and I've just been reflecting on some coaching that I designed for individuals who had chronic health conditions. So, you know, the idea was that there was this lifestyle intervention, the health coaching was helping people to, um, yeah, set some goals and take action towards a, a different, you know, a change in their life, whatever it was that they wanted to, to make. And one of the things when I was designing it that was very much at the forefront of my mind was, I want to take away failure. There is no such thing as failure in this process. And I think that's something which is true in all coaching contexts, in my opinion, which is if you identify an action and you take that action, you're going to learn. You're going to learn something. And that what you learn could be different to what you're expecting to learn. So, for example, you could learn that the goal isn't quite right. That's not really where I want to get to. And so you, you'll adjust. But equally, if you identify an action and you don't take that action, then you also learn something. You learn there's a barrier there or there's something you want to achieve and it's much harder for you to connect with that or achieve it or whatever that might be. And so this was really built in very explicitly into this coaching experience for people, which is, you know, if you don't do whatever it is that you aim to do, that's not failure. You're learning from that. And let's try and then understand why, what's going on for you. Is the action not right? Is the goal not right? Is the value not right? Is the um, the hurdles that you have to overcome in order to achieve that, are they just too hard for you right now? Do we need to try something different? And I think 
I think that is there in all of my coaching practice, but I'm not always that explicit about it. Um, but I just, that feels like it's very relevant to the conversation that we're having this sort of, there is no failure because everything is a learning opportunity. I mean, I think on the one hand, I really agree with that. And on the other hand, it's very easy for us to say that, <laughs> uh, in that if you, you know, if you haven't reached your goal in the workplace, there's consequences and it might be crosswords, but it could be something much more significant. And I think that in part explains, um, the way that people look at goals when they don't view them positively. But from an act perspective, when we're thinking about these principles, one of the most important parts of this is present moment awareness really paying attention to now to enable you to spot the options in front of you, for example, for behavior. But goals by their very nature are not in the present moment. And I think that's one of the the, the downfalls of having a very goal-focused approach. It's, oh, manana, manana, you know, that's in the future. We'll get there somehow. Um, but actually what we need to do is link now with then in the future um, and make some kind of a plan as to how you're going to get there. Otherwise, time passes, goal isn't reached, and then there's all the self-blame, recriminations, and perceptions of failure that are really, really unhelpful. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I, it surprises me continually the competent, really uh, incredible people that I work with and they are carrying around this, you know, fear of failure and imposter syndrome and those things that can really get in the way of us performing at our best because we're, we're giving that the airtime, you know? So asking those questions, thinking about those things as possible, um, rather than going with what we can just see in front of us, um, in terms mm -hmm. of that person's, uh, success or, uh, demeanor in, in the moment. One of the things that that's bringing up for me uh, in terms of, you know, experiences that I've had of working with folks like that, you know, there is this really lovely uh, aspect of ACT, uh, which is you don't have to feel different to do something different. You can have all of those things in your mind. We're talking about things like imposter syndrome or, you know, fear of failure. They, I see that a lot when I'm working with people in the workplace. And it's interesting, I hadn't made that connection between goals almost feeling like, almost kind of punitive, like if you don't achieve them, something is going to happen. And of course, you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's those things that can really get in the way of us taking action. And I think one of the nicest things, one of the most effective things in ACT is really encouraging people to take the steps towards, you know, what it is that they need to do and have those thoughts and feelings still be there. Like, you don't have to get rid of that sense of fear of failure, or you don't need to get rid of that sense of uh, imposterism. You can have them be part of the lived experience, which is gonna it's gonna happen, and it's okay if you feel those things. In fact, quite often, what I've noticed is it's when things are really important to people that those fears really get triggered. You know, if you don't care so much it's very unlikely that you're going to get triggered and feel that fear. It tends to be the things that are more important to us, that matter more to us, you know, work that is that we care about. That's when you tend to get those things triggered. And quite often, if I have that conversation with people and make the link and sort of say to them, you know, it makes sense 
that you feel like this because you're stretching yourself and you're doing something that really matters to you and we kind of you know link their values then all of a sudden you know those fear feelings they take on a different shape or feel or you know they they can be a little bit more bearable and that's always an interesting dynamic to play with uh when when coaching it's just to help people to see that link between well firstly what you're feeling is not you know you're not alone and also probably is a result of the fact that this really matters to you it's really important to you kind of makes I, sense I was, yeah absolutely and i was just about to ask you about you know where you see real value or impact of these act principles and and bringing that to life with people and and i think that exploration of thoughts and feelings from a different perspective rather than something to be overcome or subsumed or repressed or removed they're part of our experience and they kind of come with us um rather than act necessarily as a barrier to us taking action and that point that you've made is one when i make it i see people you know get that i hate to call it this but that light bulb moment you know where they realize oh i could act i don't have to wait for these feelings to go before i take the action that i say i want because it's a, such a difficult a different way of looking at things when we're i suppose taught from an early age that um it's how you feel that ha- dictates what you do when in fact what we're saying is well you can do what matters regardless of the thoughts and feelings that show up inside and and for me that's probably the most impactful part of bringing this stuff to life in coaching when we explore that and the clients cultivate a completely different relationship with their thoughts and feelings to the relationship they had when we started working i love that and what that brings up for me is this sense of empowering like i'm always about my target is always empowering my clients um, to really notice those moments where they have they have a choice. You know, in ACT, we refer to them as choice points. It's a fork in the road where you could take one pathway forward or you could take another pathway forward. And it could be something super small uh, or it could be something pretty big or feels very big. The idea is that that present moment awareness that we were talking about you know, in relation to the longer term goal that you want to achieve, being able to notice, is this path going to take me there or is this path going to take me there? It's always the client's choice. It should always be their choice because it's their journey. And really what my role is as the coach is to help them notice those moments and to be able to make better decisions that will serve them better, whether that's like you were saying, you know, there's, there's things that they need to achieve or there's things that are important to them. We want to get them to connect with those things too. So for me, very much success in coaching is that empowerment. And, you know, it's the, the goals are almost incidental because the journey is going to continue on. You know, you're going to achieve or, or rather not achieve, you know, whatever goals it is that you identify. And sometimes the not achieving them is as successful as achieving them. Do you notice it? it's the journey that that matters? And for me, this iterative process of noticing is where ACT is very powerful because it gives you all of these six processes. You mentioned diffusion. We've talked about values. I think we talked a little bit about mindful awareness. We've also got this idea of committed action, taking action towards the things that matter to you, being able to see thoughts and feelings as 
just thoughts and feelings, which is diffusion, and then this acceptance, this willingness to take the action, even if that feels hard. Sometimes it's easy, but generally as a coach, you're working with helping people to take action that feels a bit more challenging to them and overcoming some of those psychological barriers that they might be experiencing. So I think ACT kind of wraps it up nicely. And going back to a metaphor I used earlier, it kind of gives you the map to follow when you're working with people around you know, the processes that could be at play in something. And they're, they're usually, it's not just one, there'll be a few different things going on for people, you know, working with people to really help them to notice the, the moments that they can choose to go one way or another way. And it's not about, for me anyway, it's not about what they choose to do. It's helping them to build that skill and that ability to navigate using those processes more successfully. A word that we discussed, and I'm going back a few years, (laughs) this is pre-plague time when we would sit down with the pines and put the the word, the world uh, into order. But a word we spent quite a bit of time discussing was workability, you know, exploring the workability of someone's behavior. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I think you described this really nicely. No pressure. I think for me, workability is a, it's a core part of it. It's that, um, is this in the context of everything that is going on? You know, is this, is this going to serve you well? Whatever this is, and it could be an action. Like we said, it could be a goal. I think our lives are never or rarely ideal. And especially as a coach, you're not really working on the stuff that feels easy. You tend to be working on the stuff that feels a little bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. And so within ACT, it's not this, you know, you're not aiming for an ideal state. Uh, You're you're aiming for the workable state. What is going to work in the context that you are in, whatever that might be. And we've all got our own unique learned history. So we have... Uh, in our minds and again I think ACT talks about this really transparently you know we don't have a delete button we can't get rid of thoughts and feelings and emotional experiences and physical experiences and all of those different things that as a human being just happen to you during your life we don't get to choose what we keep and what we get rid of it's just sort of our mind is additive and so, you know, all of this stuff is coming along for the ride and some of it's lovely and builds our self-confidence and builds our self-efficacy and some of it isn't great and is a bit more challenging and gives us doubt and gives us fear and all of those sorts of things. And that's normal. That's everybody. So you have your own context. We all have our own slightly individual, slightly unique context and there's similarities across them and the thing, but, you know, you're you have that yourself. And so the workability is taking, what is it that you want to achieve? What is it that you want to connect with that's important to you? Um, But then also what's going to work in the situation with you as a human being and within the context that you're in. And I think sometimes you do get this sense of like, oh, we should be aiming for the ideal. And I love that act says no, because the ideal might not be workable. I used to use this uh, example of uh, being down in London for work and all my family being in the Northeast. And um, 
it's not such a good example anymore because I actually moved to the northeast last year. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> gotta find a new example. Yeah, you've got to get a new example. It comes up with its own challenges because the northeast economically is so different to London. You know, I am predominantly a workplace psychologist and consultant, and I'm now having to be a little bit more creative around how I how I do my work. And luckily, people are really open to working virtually, which is fantastic. But again, you know, things up here are workable, but it's different to if I'd stayed in London and I was going to open up my own consulting practice. You know, there's there's ways of doing things that will work up here that won't work down there and that will be workable for me. Would it be workable <laughs> for me to move back down to London? Possibly not in my marriage. No. <laughs> The role of context is never far away from these discussions. I, I remember what really resonated with me um, years ago again now was the discussion about moving away from right versus wrong. It's a very simple judgment that we make all the time, whereas workable doesn't say to the client, one of these options is intrinsically wrong and one is correct, and I need to hear you say the right one. It's in this context what's going to be helpful. And that takes so much pressure off. And actually, it can allow people to not be defensive about things and say, well, okay, as two adults, we both know the way that I'm dealing with this isn't helpful, so let's talk about it, rather than, nope, this is the only way I can deal with this situation. And moving away from these binary evaluations of our actions, our options, and our thoughts and emotions I find that one of the most useful things to explore using ACT in coaching because so much of, uh, I mean, at least when I first started training in coaching methods and when I was first exposed to coaching, and we're talking 20 years ago now, but so much of that presupposed that the client knew what they wanted and they were really clear on what was important to them and what they really needed was someone to tell them how to overcome the challenges. When in fact, we know now that a lot of the time people subscribe to inauthentic goals where they haven't thought about what's really important to them in life, or they are allowing um, inconsequential things to become huge barriers for them in the day to day. And that's another reason I'm, I'm really passionate about bringing this act perspective to coaching where we don't assume you know what you want. We ask you how, how clear you are on what you want, and we start from there. Do you know, it's interesting. It, it, there's something about values that, again, same as you, you know, when I first started looking into coaching, it was kind of, you know, career coaching. It was a little bit more sort of focused on the doing and not necessarily so much on the direction. I, I don't know. Some people might feel that's a little bit unfair. But um, one of the things that I use now is I really – I use values so heavily in my work, pretty much in any context. So that's coaching, supervision, you know, working with uh, students to a certain extent, you're working with colleagues, you know, I would bring values into it pretty early on. In my coaching, it's the first thing I'll do, uh, apart from saying hello, obviously. <laughs> There'll be a bit of a contracting phase. And then when we get into the work, we start with values. And the reason is, that they set the direction and you can use them so heavily in order to get that motivation. You've got to step into a swamp and we use this metaphor of kind of moving through a swamp to get to something that's valuable and worth it. 
the other side. You know, this isn't about being masochistic and forcing yourself into situations for the sake of it. It's about being compassionate to yourself and saying, okay, you've got to do something really hard, you know, if it's worth it, if it's um, something that matters to you. Or in an organizational context, as you rightly pointed out, you know, maybe it's something that you need to do for the organizational context in some way. But I think being willing to take that step into the swamp and being really sort of transparent and honest about how hard that is. You know, it's not going to be easy, but is it worth it? Is it worth doing? You know, that's really, that's where we're trying to go with this, I often feel. Taking you to the edge of the swamp, you might dip your toe in, but you've got to decide, you know, are you going to, are you going to go for it and, and, and step into it? Or is there another way? Client's choice, always. Always. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't make you, I can take you there and I can ex- you know, describe this and set the scene and use any number of metaphors and images, but actually in coaching, it's the client's choice. For listeners um, who want to know more about this, I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes, but I direct you all to our page on psychological flexibility on the website, which outlines all these processes that we've talked about, and it lists some of the podcast episodes where we've discussed it before. You can find that at worklifesock.com slash psychological flexibility. Um, and I'm also going to list a link to some of the, the other things that Rachel and I have discussed um, that I know specifically we've covered in previous episodes. In the interest of time, though, I'm so glad I looked up there and I've just seen just how long we've been recording for. <laughs> in the interest of time, um, Rachel, is there one thing that you wish everybody knew that you would draw from the ACT framework? One thing you'd really like our listeners to think about at the end of this episode? Oh, that's such a good but slightly evil question. (laughs) What is the one thing? What's popped into my head is, I think what ACT has given me personally and given a lot of people I've worked with is when you are in it, when you are trying to do stuff and you're feeling some of the more difficult things, you're feeling lonely or down or um, frightened or, you know, fearful, um, I think it can be a very lonely place. I think it's you feel like you're the only one and that puts an awful lot of pressure on you as a person. One of the things that ACT has done for me and a lot of other people is it's actually shone the light into the other fears and uh, difficulties that other people are having and makes you realise that you're, you're definitely not alone. These are definitely not you know, you are not the only human being that has doubt and fear and feels those things deeply and acutely. And actually, a lot of the things that we're carrying around are the same. There's a fantastic video that I saw at an ACT conference, which was people putting on cards their fears. And it's a very emotional experience to watch these people sharing a picture of them and what they are carrying around, you know. So that would be my one thing. You're not alone. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just doing difficult stuff. Well, that's a really nice um, answer and not what I expected, I'll be honest. So that's, that's a really nice way of looking at it. 
Um, Rachel, we've got to wrap it up there. Um, I'm going to be directing our listeners to a whole host of things. No doubt we'll get some follow-up questions. Listeners, I would love to hear from you. So please feel free to email us. Uh, the address is podcast at worklifepsych.com. Or you can message us on any of the socials. We're Work Life Psych on all of those things. So please let us know what questions you have, what feedback you have. I'll make sure we, we get answers for you. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. Um, and uh, once again, plug the webinar. You and I are going to be running on March 16th of this year, which is really going to elaborate on this. How can coaching be helpful in organizational settings? How can you introduce it carefully and with intent? How can you increase the chances of the coaching being successful? I kind of think we've given part of the answer here today. <laughs> um, and also something we didn't talk about, which is how can we help you equip your people with these skills so they can do the coaching for themselves, which is another really interesting question. We may talk about that another time, but definitely we're going to talk about it on that free webinar on March 16th. So there'll be a link so that you can sign up for that in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure I'll speak to you again very soon. My absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at WorkLifePsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.